guys can be seated. Well, good morning. Ah, wake up, wake up, wake up. Good morning. All right, you guys are confirming a little bit. That's a little better, but you're confirming that we need to do a little call and response. So let's do it. Uh, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna do it from Psalm 118. I love it. This is one of my favorite passages. So uh, we have we actually have a lot to celebrate today. Um, so let's kick it off with, with Psalm, 18, Psalm 118. It says this. I want you to repeat after me. Today is the day that the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day that the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. I don't need this mic. Today is the day that And I will rejoice and be glad in it. All right. I like it. That's good. All right. So we have um, a lot to celebrate this morning. Uh, first of all, today, it made it, you may not know this, today marks what's called Pentecost Sunday. So that's kind of like the birthday of the church, right? So about 1,000, roughly 1,988 years ago, uh, the Holy Spirit overwhelmed and filled the first disciples of Jesus Christ, and he ignited them with the flame of his spirit, and the official church was ignited and inaugurated upon the earth. That's what we celebrate today. That's Pentecost. So that same day, the Spirit testified boldly through the disciples, and more than 3,000 people were saved and baptized on that same day. So now our particular local church, Risen Church, is only about three years old. Um, we're, we're, we're only turning three years old, but um, we are a part of the continuation of God's spirit-filled bride who's been making disciples and planting churches and baptizing believers in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit for almost 2,000 years. That is a great heritage. Amen? And so it is appropriate that today we get to celebrate Pentecost and the birthday of the church through multiple baptisms. So, after the, let's see, after the second service today, we're going to be baptizing multiple people just out here in the courtyard into new life in Christ. So it'll be after the second service right out here in the back, um, and we should get started around 1245. So feel free to stick around for the second service or go grab some lunch, you know, Rudy's is right there. You'll probably even be able to see it from the window, right? Public demonstration of inward faith. That's baptism, right? Um, but feel free, come back, grab some donuts, you know, get lunch, come back, get dessert. It'll be great. Um, and, uh, yeah, 1245 is when we're going to get started. Uh, come back, show your support and your embrace of these people who are declaring new life in Christ. So we are continuing this morning through our series in Revelation called Victory Unveiled. And so Revelation is just that, right? It's the revealing or unveiling of truth and the truth about what's actually going on around us and who is actually in control and holds the victory over the circumstances in which we now live. So it's an ancient letter that was once uh, or was originally written in the first century church um, or to the first century church 
by the Apostle John almost 2,000 years ago, and it's a letter of hope and encouragement during a time of extreme political upheaval and Roman persecution. And so it has a specific context and a specific purpose and a specific meaning. It's not one of those things which you just kind of like look at and you're like, ah, oh, this is kind of like weird and sci-fi and, and, you know, I'm just going to, you know, it can mean kind of whatever I want it to mean. No. It has a specific context and a specific meaning and a specific purpose, and you are going to miss it if you don't understand that, okay? And so, we need to realize that this isn't just about something that happened a long time ago or will happen in a distant future. This is the revelation of the reality in which we now live. And so it's the prophetic account of a very real supernatural experience that John had 2,000 years ago, but through this letter and the Holy Spirit, we're invited to experience this very real, very relevant revelation for ourselves today. So, quick recap. John, the apostle, is taken up in the Spirit as God pulls back the physical veil and reveals who is actually in control of eternity. And all that's happening around them then and us now. And so it's an encouragement to the church that Christ holds the ultimate victory no matter what it might seem like in the world around them then and us now. So it's the reminder that if you are in Christ, you have been rescued, redeemed, equipped, empowered, and commissioned to bring salvation to those drowning in a sinful and chaotic world. And so over the past few chapters... We've been presented with visions of a spiritual battle between uh, the people of God and the enemies of God. Right? Chapter 14 has given us a vision of what will ultimately happen to God's people. And it gave us, at the beginning of it, a vision of what will ultimately happen to God's enemies. And so this morning, we're going to continue through uh, the last portion of chapter 14, verses 12 through 20. And what we're going to see is a call to faithful obedience an encouragement of hope, and then we're going to get two powerful visions of harvest, okay? So, here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else this Pentecost Sunday, here's what I want you to get, okay? God delights in the fruit his spirit produces in and through his people. These are the deeds that echo in eternity. God delights in the fruit his spirit produces in and through his people. These are the deeds that echo in eternity. All right? So, turn with me to Revelation 14. I'm going to read through uh, verse 12 through 20, and then we're going to drop back and we'll walk through it together. Okay? You guys ready? You guys are furiously jotting down that... Uh, that main point, I love it, I like it, I'm going to say it again, all right? We're, this, is gonna, this is one of those sermons that's just like, we're going to hit the same point over and over again. Revelation 14, 12 through 20, here we go. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. 
And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, and he swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Woo! Welcome to church. So, you guys remember the opening scene to the movie Gladiator? You guys didn't see that coming, did you? This, it, it's one of my favorite scenes. I, I, I've probably used it multiple times in sermon illustrations because I like it. But um, the Roman general Maximus is putting down a, a, a rebellion in Germania, right? And he's about to lead their cavalry into battle by flanking the German horde. And it's this risky and dangerous move, right? And so just before they attack, he gives them this um, sort of pep talk, this little simple speech. And he says this, hold the line. Stay with me. If you find yourself riding in green fields with the sun on your face, do not be troubled, for you are in Elysium, and you're already dead. And all the Roman soldiers are like, ha, 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 right? And you know, it's like horses are snorting in the background, and like, you know, it's just super epic. And then he says, brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity, right? And then they all cheer, and they wave their swords, you know. And the, the music, it's like Hans Zimmer, and it's like, you know. So it's a great movie. The question is, is that true? Is that true? Does what we do in life echo in eternity? If you ask most Christians, they're going to say that the only thing that really matters for eternity is whether or not you've received the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Because in some ways... They're right. That's true. The Bible is clear that without the grace of God, even your best works are just self-centered and worthless. None of us are able to pay the debt that we owe for even the smallest sin against a holy God. And any attempt at being good enough or doing enough good to earn salvation is simply in vain. It's impossible. It's like presenting an egotistical resume to the God of eternity for why you deserve to be where he is, like him. It's not going to work out too well for you, right? But as we said last week, the reason all of humanity deserves eternal punishment in a very real hell isn't because of the value of the offender, but the value of the offended. In other words, so many people think, how can the sin of a finite creature deserve infinite punishment, right? And the answer to that is that true justice isn't contingent upon the value of the offender. It's contingent upon the value of the offended. We talked about this last week. And all sin is ultimately against God, and his value is immeasurable. And so if justice is to take place, then the punishment must fit the crime. 
but how could a finite being ever repay such an offense? The debt owed is beyond comprehension because the glory and value of God is beyond comparison. And so to lower the penalty due to any sinner and any sin against a holy God is to lower the value and glory of God. This is the situation of all humanity. This is why the only one, the only one who could ever pay my debt and your debt, the only one with enough glory and value to cover my sin is Jesus Christ alone because he's God incarnate. And he took what we deserve. This is, this is the Jesus who doesn't just offer us mercy, which just sets justice aside for another day, right? Jesus paid for my sin at the cross with his perfect life, a life so glorious, so valuable, so infinitely beautiful that it was sufficient to cover the sins of all who would receive the grace that he offers through his sacrifice by faith. This is the gospel. And so hell is actually the eternal reminder that God's glory is greater than any of us ever imagined. And if that's true, how much more glory is unveiled through his grace. This is the gospel. God became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved to die. And he conquered death in the grave by paving the way to eternal life that starts now. Not just one day when we die, but it starts now with God the Father. The relationship with him in his spirit fills us because the blood of Christ gives us access to him. And we experience, we're filled with his spirit. And we're, we're commissioned for his purpose and his glory and for good works. Now, watch this. So it's that vision, that vision of heaven and hell that provides the context for verse 12 in chapter 14 of Revelation. So it says this, dropping back. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. All right, now lean in here. So we've got two characteristics of the saints. And yes, saints are Christians. Every Christian, redeemed, sanctified, set aside, filled with his spirit, you're a saint. Okay? And so we've got two characteristics of the saints. Those who keep, one, the commandments of God, and two, their faith in Jesus. Okay? hold on, but I thought that, you know, the commandments of God don't really matter anymore. Like, like, isn't that just like Old Testament stuff? Like, didn't Jesus do away with all that commandment stuff? No. In fact, Jesus himself made it clear in Matthew 5, 17, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, the law and commandments of God matter because they matter to God. Okay? And so, now, uh, hear me. I'm not talking about the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament that so many people get so hung up on, like tattoos or particular food choices or hair length, right? That all had a specific context, all right? I'm talking about the theological why behind the what for every commandment in the Bible, including those. Like, what's the why behind the what? That's the theological, that's the commandments, and that stuff never fades. We're a why behind the what kind of people, Right? We're not just empty traditions. We're a people that look to Jesus and want to glorify him with our hearts, not just our actions. 
not just going through the motions, right? So, even Jesus, he actually summed it all up for us in Matthew 22, uh, verse 37 through 40. And he said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He said, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, the entire Bible is summed up in that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Boom. Do that. That's that's what God's called us to do. Like, in other words, the entire Bible is summed up in this. So, you know, good luck. Don't screw that up. Right? Like, that's what you're created for. Dismissal or rebellion against that in any way warrants eternal justice. That's heavy. It, it just is. So who could ever live up to that? When you think about that, who could ever live up to that? Jesus Christ. And only Jesus Christ. And live up to it, he did. On our behalf. And by doing so, Jesus didn't lower the commandments bar. Okay? He actually showed us just how high the bar really is. But he also provided the capacity for us to leap way higher than you ever thought. Look at John 13, verse 34 through 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. All right, so there's nothing new, nothing new here. All right, sounds like the greatest commandment we just talked about, right, which we've been butchering since the beginning, right? So it's like when Jesus says a new commandment for you, I give to you, like you, it's kind of almost like, all right, well, what? What else you got for me to fail miserably at, right? And this is what he says. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by loving God and loving people perfectly. And he talked about it and he demonstrated it. And now he's commanding those who experienced his love to love one another the exact same way he loves them. All right? But how? How could I ever love you the exact same way that Jesus loves me? How? Well, this is the thing that sets true disciples apart from the rest of the world. This is it. Because Jesus loves others through you. It's very important. When you really surrender your life to Jesus, you're going to experience the love of God in your heart for people that you don't even like. Like, you'll find yourself setting your preferences aside to serve people and forgive people and seek to understand and prefer others and then find yourself confused about where that even came from. Like, he will shock you. Right? if you let him, because it comes from his Holy Spirit. This is why it's so important, because it's the Spirit inside of us who's continually maturing his people and calling them to good works, not to save you, right? Those works are not what saves you, contrary 
to false religion, those works do not save you. In fact, the point, lean into this, because the reason why this gets confusing is because people are like, well, I'm not even going to touch this because the world corrupts this so much that we don't even talk about good works anymore, right? Because, in fact, the point here is that you can't really love others with the Spirit of God if the Spirit of God isn't in you, right? All you have to offer is your own fickle contract love, like a prenuptial agreement kind of love, right? It's that kind of like contractual, I'll love you as long as you love me, but the moment you screw up, I'm out. That's the way the world thinks of love. It's contractual, but the love of God in Christ is the unconditional, unrelenting, never-ending, my life for your life, me for you kind of covenant love. That's what he's called his people to. And when we receive the grace of God in Christ, he fills us with his spirit, and he recreates us as conduits of his presence to the world around us. It's almost like he wants us to share life in Christ with each other in our city or something. And when we fall short, we don't point fingers and blame and condemn. We stand firm on the security of his righteousness, his righteousness, not mine, not yours, his. And the identity that we have in him, because we've been forgiven so much, we're now able and secure and called to forgive much. Just as he's forgiven us, because we now love with his love. That's the kind of fruit that God's cultivating in and through his people. That's what he's after. It's the fruit that tastes like love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and kindness and gentleness and self-control, right? It's the fruit that tastes like the kingdom of heaven, man. It's the fruit that comes from being connected to and nourished by God himself. And it's the fruit that he is turning into a fine wine for an eternal celebration. Doesn't mean you're just constantly producing fruit and you're perfect. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that you're connected to him and he is sanctifying and cultivating this in your life and producing this fruit in and through you. It's the fruit that God himself is cultivating and producing for in and through his people. But again, your works don't save you. They can't. Because fruit is a symptom, right? You can't be like, you know, I got to, I need, like, if you're detached from the vine, you can't be like, I got to reattach to the vine, so I'm going to produce fruit. It didn't work. I'm still withering, right? I'm going to try harder. If I just believe real hard, if I just think real hard about it and don't, don't doubt then I'll produce fruit. Didn't work. God must hate me. Why is God calling me to do something that, that, that he didn't create me to do, right? This, no. He's, this is, you're, you're detached from the source. You've got to get back to the source. Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you're over here and you're like, i got to produce fruit, and then it's like, boom, fruit. Ha <laughs> ha! See, I don't need you. This is my resume. I'm going to give you my resume, God. God's like, you're missing it. It's worthless. 
So again, faith in Jesus is crucial. Faith in Jesus is crucial for salvation. There's no way to it other than that. But again, there's more. Because you reread that, man, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you hear that all the time. If you're in this church, you do. You should hear it. It's great, right? But what about verse 10? Let's keep reading. Don't stop there because there's more, right? So by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for salvation, and that's all that matters. Everything else burns, so just pray your salvation prayer. Check out, sit back, and wait for Jesus to come back and burn it all down. Right? Because after all, your best works are worthless to the Lord. Probably just holds them in contempt. No, it's not what it says. You're a new creation in Christ. You're reborn by his spirit. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not so you can get saved, but because you are saved. Right? I had a friend that used to say, it all, say this to me all the time. Remind your face that you're saved. I love it. I think about it all the time. Because his spirit lives within you. Because he's changing your heart and your desires and your will. He's changing your desires and your will. That's amazing. And he's aligning you with what he loves. This is what he's doing. He's cultivating and he's producing good fruit in you. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Hey, don't miss this. Yes, it's talking about the fact that when believers die, they go to be with Jesus. That's awesome, right? But there's another powerful implication here. Don't miss it. Christians are putting in work on the earth. Like, they are laboring. They are toiling away, even striving by the power of the Spirit working in and through them. And it's not to earn salvation, but to see their king glorified, to crucify their flesh, to lean into his spirit, and to see his gospel of grace go forth upon the earth, even at their own lives being laid down. With joy, Paul articulates this so well in his letter to the Colossians, man. I mean, he just nails this to the floor, so I'm just going to read it. Colossians 1, verse 24 through 29 says this. Now I rejoice. Say rejoice. Rejoice. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's talking to the church. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Wait a minute. Like, what could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? There's only one thing. It's got to get to those who don't know about what he did. To build up the church. But it's not a drudgery. It's an honor. And it's a joy to be invited into the greatest mission in eternity. Verse 25. Look at this. So he's rejoicing in this. It's a joy to participate, to partner 
in the koinonia of God. Verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Verse 28. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And here it is. You ready? No, you're not. Here we go. Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Woo! He is putting in work. To present everyone mature in Christ. He's making disciples who make disciples and he's pressing in. And he's not doing it in his own strength. He's doing it not in his own energy, but by the spirit of God who works so powerfully within him. And he's rejoicing in it all. It's a joy to partner in the gospel of Christ by the power of Christ himself through his Holy Spirit. How cool is that? Philippians 2, verse 12, last half of verse 12 through 15 says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You got to be careful here. Don't stop there. Don't stop there. A lot of people stop there, and this verse is used as like this motivation for people to earn their salvation, right? Don't stop there, though. Got to keep reading. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. (laughs) God is the cause, right? Another way of saying this would be God is working in you to will or to desire to work for his good pleasure. Like God has filled you with his spirit. He's given you a regenerate heart and he's changing your desires to align with his. He's even given you the muscle of salvation, And he's commanding you to exercise it, to work it out, to put it in practice. He's calling you not to be a couch potato Christian. Right? He's just like, I got my salvation card and my fire insurance, and I'm just going to eat potato chips and act like a devil. Take it seriously. Because you value what's been given to you. Right? Right? Because what his spirit produces in and through you is eternally significant. And he delights in it, man. He cherishes all of it. That's the encouragement of Revelation 14, verse 13. Blessed indeed, for their deeds follow them. Because we're filled to overflowing with the one who is, according to Ephesians 3.20, able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within you. This is our commissioning verse. I tell you to go with God every time. You know why? Because I'm not sending you out alone. I'm saying go with him because he's working in and through you. He delights in it. And this is actually what we're celebrating when we celebrate Pentecost and the birth of the church. <laughs> right after Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he spent 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. How cool would that have been? Right? Resurrected, glorified, physical Jesus, 
40 days, just summary time, right? And, and teaching the disciples all about, like, what's coming and the kingdom and all this stuff. And then just before ascending into heaven, he gathered them all together and he gave them the great commission. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so now by this point, you'd think, right, that the disciples who are listening to this, as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and he's given this great commission, you'd think that these guys are like fully equipped to take this thing to the nations, right? You'd think that they were, like, ready to go, you know? Like, I always imagine this as sort of like a championship game speech, right? Like the team's losing their best player, you know? They're about to go into the championship, and he's like, you know, he's carried them the whole way to that point, and there's no way that they're going to win without him, and they know it, you know? But now he's like, you don't need me. You can do it, Right? I've done my part, now it's up to you, and you're ready, you know? It's like all those movies where the kid's, like, in the, the, the stretcher in the hospital, and he's like, go, team, you know? <laughs> That's kind of, you know, and honestly, think about this. If ever there were a group of people that was ready, it was them, right? I mean, seriously. Like, they had walked with the physical incarnation of God on the earth for the past three years. They'd seen it all. They didn't just watch Jesus do it all either. They had the experience, man, that Jesus intentionally involved them in his ministry all along the way. They were the ones who were handing out the fishes and the loaves that just kept on multiplying and multiplying and multiplying for thousands. Even demons fled from people when the disciples prayed in Jesus' name, right? Peter walked on water. These guys, this, you know, Jesus had been telling them the whole time that they would do those things and even more. And so it seemed like this was it, right? It's go time. We're moving up. JV to varsity. And just before Jesus ascends into heaven, right, I almost expect him like, you know, almost feels like he, he gets the angels and the disciples and circles them all up, right? Like he's like, all right, guys, make disciples on three, right? Like one, two, three, make disciples. Then he's, as Jesus is, like, floating away, like, up into heaven, he kind of shouts out, like, don't screw it up. You know? <laughs> one of the first times, one of the first times I preached to a pretty big congregation was in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, and, and I didn't really know anybody, and the whole congregation was, like, majority army, right? And so um, I was nervous, but I thought I was doing a pretty good job of, like, hiding the nerves, or at least I thought I was like keeping them under control and all that. And as I'm walking out onto the stage to preach, one of the elders, which was like some kind of yoked up special operations guy with one of those like Noah beards, you know, he gives me a good game smack on the butt as I'm like, as I'm walking up. And I mean, it like almost lifted me up off my feet. Like, I mean, he, he had to have like wound up, you know. And as he does it, he, he sort of like gruffly whispers like, don't be bad. <laughs> As I'm walking out, um, that's not what Jesus does. <laughs> like, that's, he's not like, well, I've done my part. Now it's up to you. Don't screw it up. That's not what he does. He's not like, I'll be back to check in on things in a few thousand years. He does the opposite of that. 
in fact, even though he told them to make disciples of every nation, he also makes it clear that they still weren't ready. <laughs> he, he told them in Acts 1.8 that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, it would be like Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads, America, everywhere, right? But he says not yet. He's clear that they're still not ready yet. So he tells them to wait in Jerusalem because he's sending the promised Holy Spirit. Because without his spirit, even the most experienced disciples could do nothing of eternal value without the spirit. These disciples were still just vainly striving against the wind in their own strength. Without the Holy Spirit, even their best works were by their own strength. Isaiah 64, 6 puts it like this. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some versions say filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So if this is what even the good deeds of sinful humanity are like to God, how could anyone accomplish this great commission, which requires very real work? If even our best works, even our attempts at righteousness are like excrement-covered rags, it says they all fade like a withering leaf, like it's a detached from the vine, detached from the source of life and goodness. I mentioned last week this image runs deep in the Bible. Fig leaves are, are, are like these big, broad leaves that were used to shelter from the heat of the desert sun in uh, the biblical context. And so they were what Adam and Eve used to hide their sense of naked vulnerability and sinfulness when they, discuss, when they realized they were in sin. And so this is how Isaiah describes the self-righteous works of a sinful people. Like, how are you able to cover anyone or provide any shelter or refuge from the heat of God's wrath if you yourself are disconnected from God and rotting? This is all false religion. It might look good on the outside, but at the end of the day, it's just self-righteous and worthless. Detached from the source and destined to rot and wither away like a foul, rotten, excrement-covered garment. And it's true. Detached from him, it's about your own strength and your, our own righteousness, our own pride and ego and capacity to do it on our own. Like, I don't need the vine. I'm fine on my own. Right? For a while, you do look good, detached from the vine. You still look kind of alive. You have the appearance of godliness, but you've denied its power. For so many, this is the source of so much anxiety because deep down, you know it's only a matter of time before people and God realize you're withering and you can only keep up the appearance of life for so long, like a branch disconnected from the vine or the source of life. But Jesus doesn't send his disciples out to labor in the heat of a fallen world, detached and destined to just dry up and burn out in their own strength. So he tells them, wait. And about 50 days after his resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, which Pentecost means basically 50 days later, he filled them to overflowing with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave and the very source and the very substance of life itself. <laughs> he connects them to the true and eternal vine, which Jesus says is himself. Right? 
Pentecost was the birth of the church through the filling of the Holy Spirit. They were overcome with joy and boldness to declare good news of the gospel to everybody in exactly the same way that they needed to hear and understand it. Go to Acts 2. It tells the story. It's amazing. Peter stood up and he addressed the gathered crowds and testified to what they had all experienced. And he presented the good news of what Jesus had done through the cross and the resurrection. And at least 3,000 people were baptized right then and there. In the, in the words of the song we just sang in King of Kings, you just sang this. And the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom, I am free for the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me. Woo! I love that song. John 15. I got some scripture for you because it's necessary when interpreting Revelation. John 15, verse 4 through 12. Jesus' words, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love Some of you can't even hear that yet because you're still thinking about the fire. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Can you see? Notice that his love and his commandments are not disconnected. (laughs) Love what he loves. Guard his words. Keep his words. Not your opinions. True obedience isn't about the things that you just agree with or can even understand or preferences. That's not making Jesus Lord. You're still Lord, and you're trying to get Jesus to confirm what you already believed. That's not Christianity. Verse 11. Ready for a whole different sermon there, going way over here. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy, say joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. God delights in the fruit of his spirit, or sorry, God delights in the fruit his spirit produces in and through his people. These are the deeds that echo in eternity. Revelation 14, verse 14 through 16. Here we go. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. All right, you guys with me right now? This is a picture of Jesus. He's holding, he, he holds the title of the son of man throughout scripture. He called himself that. It's a reference to the son of man, a messianic figure. And it's a reference to the cloud. This cloud is a reference to the cloud of his glory. It's pure it's amazing. 
and his royal crown depicts him as the one who's ruling and reigning and enthroned in glory, seated upon this cloud of glory. And he has a sharp sickle, which is what you would use to harvest grapes from a vineyard when they are ripe. And so, verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he, he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So this is the first harvest vision here. And it's the harvest of the righteous who are reaped by Jesus himself. Right? Jesus spoke in parables about reaping and sowing a lot. He often said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who scattered seed on the ground, and when the time was right, he put in his sickle and he reaps the harvest. Okay? This is the harvest. The harvest of the righteous. Luke 10, 2 says this, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Right? Therefore, go out and work hard on your own to bring in the harvest. It's not what he says. In fact, he goes around his elbow. You'd think that that's what he would say, right? But he intentionally goes out of his way to say the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Why does he do this? Why does he go around his elbow and make such an awkward statement? Because he's trying to make it clear that the labor of the kingdom is by the Spirit. Therefore, pray, prayer is primary, right? That's why we say faith is the currency of the kingdom of heaven here, right? Because it's not your own strength. This is a co-mission. As Martin Luther famously put it, right? I have so much to do today that, I must, that I'm convinced that I must spend at least the first three hours in prayer. <laughs> I love it. Revelation 14, verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So notice that the vine of the earth is here. Uh, and that's, that's not specified in the first vision of harvest. This is different. These are the works of the citizens of the earth. Their source comes from the earth themselves, detached. There is, they are producing works, though. This is the fruit of the rebellious, whose deeds are by their own strength for their own glory, building their own kingdoms. Detached. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the grape or the great winepress of the wrath of God. So a winepress was a place where you trampled grapes under your feet, crushed down into red juice that's like blood flowing into containers for wine. This is the image. The Old Testament often uses wine presses to illustrate the coming of God's wrath. Verse 20. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, which is where justice was administered to the unclean or the criminal, ostracized, outcasts, right? This is why Jesus was crucified outside of the city. And he took the crushing weight of wrath on our behalf. But this is presenting the visceral vision of justice that awaits all who've not received that sacrifice by faith. 
what he did for us. And blood, and then it says, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This image is meant to be shocking, okay? 1,600 stadia would have been about 184 miles. 184 miles of a river that's about five to six foot deep, okay? Like that's almost from here to D.C., the image conveys the aftermath of a great wartime slaughter and is, in, in this case, um, as with almost all other numbers in Revelation, very symbolic. So, in other words, this is probably not a literal 184-mile-long river of blood, right? It's conveying something, again, much more profound and probably gruesome. So bear with me, all right? Because we're about to get into numbers and stuff. The number four is symbolic of the four corners of the earth in Revelation, which points to the global totality of this judgment, right? When four is squared, which would allude to the fullness of that judgment, what do you get? Sixteen. Multiply that by 100, which again symbolizes completion and total judgment, you get 1,600. That's what's being conveyed here. It's a prophetic way of symbolizing the final judgment when Christ returns and exacts justice. So chapter 14 is basically like an apocalyptic vision sandwich. <laughs> All right? If you've been with us, you know this, that, that chapter 14, it, it, it's... Like, we get a vision of heaven and then a vision of hell, and then we get some meaty encouragement and hope in the middle, and then it's followed by another vision of heaven and another vision of hell. That's what we're seeing in chapter 14. It's all important. It's all nourishing to the soul. This is victory unveiled, but don't miss the meat, right? This is, the ultimate, this is ultimately a letter of hope and encouragement to the rescued and redeemed. Those who have received the imputed righteousness of Christ, which means it's not ours in and of ourselves, it's directly from him, and it gives us our identity. It means that we're identified with him, and that God delights in you, and in the righteous fruit his spirit produces in and through his people. He delights in it, right? This is who you are if you are in Christ. It's your identity. Your value is not about what you can or cannot do. It's about what's been done for you in Christ. Now you got a new identity. You are now reborn as a child of God, not a slave. Okay? As children of God, catch this, our works unto the Lord aren't an expression of our value. They're an expression of his value. As children of God, our works unto the Lord aren't an expression of our value. They're an expression of his value. Here's what I mean. I close with this illustration. Maybe. My youngest daughter, Sayla, she turns three in a couple of weeks, right? Now, Father's Day is like it's June 20th. Like, we're a solid month out, right? So she made me a finger painting this week, and she just couldn't wait. She... I was writing this message, and she burst through the door of my office and just sort of danced up to me with the biggest smile on her face 
and presented this work of affection for her daddy, right? Like she climbed up in my lap and she's like pointing to the colors and grinning and dancing and she's like so thrilled. She's like, she's like looking at the colors and she's like, it's, it's an orange and blue and green, green daddy, an orange and blue for you daddy, for you daddy. She kept on saying, and orange, like over and over, like she didn't just throw it on the ground and say, here's my worthless poop art. She wasn't like, sorry, it's so bad. I'll try to do better next time. I know it's not that great. She doesn't expect me to hold that thing in contempt and her work in contempt. She was excited. She knew I'd be excited. And you know why? Because she knows how much she's loved. Because she knows that I delight in her. It was her labor of love to her daddy. It was her offering. And let me tell you something, man. It was acceptable in my sight, right? Like, seriously, you can have your Mona Lisa's. Give me all the orange and green and blue, <laughs> right? Like, it's not valuable to be because of her impressive finger painting skills. That's not what's valuable about it. It's valuable to me because of who she is. She's mine. She's my daughter. What if I was like, it needs more blue. What if I was like, it's not blue, it's blue. Go back and try again. Right? But that's how a lot of us view God, right? Like, that's how a lot of us think our lives are in his eyes. And that's only because you're about yourself. You're still trying to Make your value and your work about you. Look at him. Operate out of his delight. You need to know that if you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, then your works are not filthy rags unto the Lord. They are the fruit of his spirit in and through you, and they delight him. He's hanging them on the halls of eternity like I'm putting it on my office and refrigerator. Right? And we, we're called to spur one another on to love and good works. How do you do that? By cracking a whip, pointing to hell and saying, you better do it or else. No. By pointing to his glory and his grace and our identity as sons and daughters, that you are loved and he cherishes it. It's precious and it's pleasing to him. Right? Because we're loved by him and his love ignites our love and inflames his work through us. It delights in him. He doesn't hold him in contempt. Your obedience to serve others, to ask people what they think about Jesus, to preach the gospel, even when you're shot down. He's like, when you crucify your flesh and lean into his spirit, he's delighting in that. He's looking at that going, look at my, look at my boy. He, he's, I, yeah, he's kind of an idiot. He's not doing it great. Like, he's going, you know, it's like he needs to stop. But he's like, he's trying, and, and, I'm, and I'm, it's acceptable in my eyes, Right? And suddenly it's abundantly more than anything you could have asked, thought, or imagined because he goes, watch this. Right? Because of and according to the power at work within you. It's delightful and it's eternal. Local church, this is what it looks like to flank the hordes of hell in faithful obedience and rejoicing. 
It doesn't mean that you can't upset him, and I'm going to close here. It doesn't mean that you can't, I should say, grieve him. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Right? It, it doesn't mean that you stand condemned. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you can grieve his spirit precisely because he loves you. You can grieve him with disobedience. And that's when his spirit brings conviction, not condemnation. Conviction that says, buddy, I love you. That's not who you are. Abide in me. And allow my spirit to manifest and produce the amazing, cherishable, precious fruit of glory in and through your life. Whether it's easy, whether it's difficult, this is what we're called to. God delights in the fruit his spirit produces in and through his people. These are the deeds that echo in eternity. Let's pray.